The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here. Now, I'm delighted that we're joined for the Culture Club today by novelist Siobhan McGowan, who has just written her first novel, The Trial of Lota Ray. Thank you very much for joining us here on The Last Word. What's the book about? Okay, so it's about a young woman, Lotta Ray, who, uh, and it's at the turn of the 20th century in London. And she comes from Spitalfields, which is kind of East End area of London. And she works in the Whitbread Brewery. And there at the Whitbread Brewery, she meets her nemesis, Henry Allen Griffiths, a wealthy lobbyist who ends up attacking and raping her. Now, Lotta is a firm believer in justice. So is her father. They're quite naive, or you could say idealistic. And the powers that be think the case uh, should go to court because the Fleet Street journalists have got hold of it and it's going to crack open unless it goes there. So she becomes centre of a notorious Old Bailey trial. And the trial, she is appointed a lawyer, a barrister, William Linden, who uh, we meet first in the book. The book opens 12 years after the trial and William Linden, who is now a judge, is seen going from his house from what appears to be the last time down to the carriage where Lotta Ray is waiting for him. And the trial that takes place is not only the trial that happened 12 years before, it's the trial that Lotta is putting William under, believing he did her wrong in that trial, and the trial that William is thinking that Lotta is guilty of a great deception. So over the, the book is set over the course of this carriage ride, two-mile carriage ride across London and their mental trial of each other as they sit there beside each other. Is this based on a real story? No, no. Totally from your imagination? Totally from my own head, yes. <laughs> and why did you go back to that period? Love that period, you know. Um, I'm obsessed with the the early 20th century um it it seemed to me such a time of such great hope such great promise the bells are ringing out for a whole new century we did a bit of that at the millennium here ourselves but so the world was full of hope and naivety really and simplicity uh scientific advances the suffragette movement finding their voice uh the liberal government bringing in lots of welfare changes and then the big black boot basically of the first world war that came down and just damned and stole a generation and and the simplicity the idealism that was stripped away which was a good thing in one way there's a book by robert graves called goodbye to all that and the title of that to this day affects me i don't know why i was always so affected as it as a young girl maybe 15 16 and another book, Testament of Youth, and they both really affected me. Um, the goodbye, goodbye to your whole way of life. It's gone. It's gone. Goodbye. Like, and um, it, 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 but it also gave birth to the common man finding his voice. Uh, don't forget that um, it was not only women who didn't have the vote back in those days. The common man didn't have the vote either. It was only wealthy landed men who had the vote. But after they had been so betrayed, as they saw it, or misled, certainly, by their king and country, they were no longer so willing to bow to king and country. They demanded the vote. They demanded workers' rights. Um, There was a collapse. There was the Russian Revolution. 
that came as a thing and, and the rise of communism, you know. So it, it was such a period of change and the stripping away of idealism, which makes you kind of sad, it's poignant, but then properly the, the, the worker's voice, the man's voice, the woman's voice. Uh, there. Why that part of London? Is that where you grew up? Yeah. Um, where Lotteray is in Spitalfields, I lived just uh, beyond that uh, on, in the city, the city mile. We actually lived in the Barbican, which of course now is a, a very kind of, let's say, posh place. Um, but uh, in those days, it was just being built. This is in the early 70s. So we were living in a kind of a flat, like five floors up. It, it, the flat was nice, but there was a constant noise of drilling. And, um, you know, it was a bit of a concrete jungle, really. Um, but uh, but it was a very ghostly place, you see. It's, it has a weird kind of haunted feeling around it. And um, I I often walked with my father the same streets that Lotta walks. And um, I would often imagine, you know, the people that walked there before me. And then I would start to imagine if they walked there still, you know, and on those deserted streets. And uh, so, so that was the place, yeah, where, I, where, where she is, where I grew up as well. You're now living in Tipperary and you've been there, I think, not far off 30 years. Mm. So there's a massive difference between... Mm the middle of London City yeah. and Tipperary. Do you not yeah. miss London? Uh, no, I don't think I could ever live in a city again. Um, I when Actually, after London, I came to Dublin and I lived in Dublin for seven years and I adored Dublin as well and still do. Um, but I still wouldn't live actually in the city again. Um, I don't miss it. I love the space of the countryside. I love the nature, the peace, you know... Um, I've got I've got used to that now, you know, so I, I do still love the country, yeah. Well, if your interest, as in the book, The Trial of Lotta Ray, is very much in the early 20th century, an awful lot of your choices for the Culture Club yeah. are very much late 20th century. Yeah. And I'm going to start, as we always do with all our guests, in the first music you ever bought, first single, and as much as you have a precise memory of that. And you've got some great choices here. One that you didn't buy, uh, particularly, a Roy Orbison single, Only the Lonely. <laughs> yeah, well, that was when I was about 14 or 15. And uh, Shane, my brother, was going out with Shan Bradley at the time. And uh, she of the bass player of the Nips, as it was at that time. And they were living together um, in a flat in Highbury. And uh, they were out anyway. And I was rifling through the record collection. <laughs> and I saw Only the Lonely by Roy Orbison. So quickly I pocketed it and uh, put it in my bag and, and uh, you know, hoovered it home. So... Um, so my first my first single was was a, a criminally obtained single, but but what age group is there? Our age differences are between yourself and Shane. Five years. You're five years. Yeah. Younger. So he would have been about nineteen when he was living with her. Yeah, and I was the annoying little sister. I used to turn up at weekends. <laughs> uh, you though at that stage were a big fan of the the jam. Jam, loved the jam. Yeah. What all, was it all, about them? <gasps> Do uh, the lyrics? The lyrics are fantastic. His voice, Paul Weller's voice, the energy of the playing, great energy in it, and uh, the melodies as well, like all of those things. Well, put on the headphones because we've got a little bit of going underground. Okay. Bye. 
Great music by the jam going underground. Now, favourite album. I'm going to give note of some of the ones that you gave to us in a moment, but I'm very taken by the fact that you've picked The Pretenders because a lot of people, I think, are interested in Chrissy Hind again. A lot of people outraged by the portrayal of her in the new Danny Boyle uh, Disney Plus thing, the, The Pistol. Pistols. I haven't seen it. Yeah, well, apparently she is not the strong character in it that you would. You're looking at me askance. I'm not responsible yeah, for oh this. Oh, no, 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 but no. Chrissy Hind is a really strong individual. Very, and that's very. one of the reasons, apart from the music, I think you liked her. Oh, wasn't it? I mean, she was just so, I mean, so strong and feisty. And you can tell in her lyrics. I mean, all her lyrics packed a punch, you know, uh, a kind of. Uh, a fist like there was a fist in them and actually I mean I didn't know her but Shane knew her and and he would tell you that that's what she was like a very very feisty woman so I'm interested to actually see this um Disney 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 Plus it's called Pistol yeah Uh, Danny Boyle it's a six-part series that's on a present yeah I'm kind of interested because I mean I remember that time all very very well you know so I'd be interested to see it. The album The Pretenders has some great tracks in it. Brass and Pocket, yeah. which I think was the breakthrough single. Yeah. Uh, Stop Your Sobbing. And Kid. we're going to play one track, and this would be my personal favourite as well from that great album. This is Kid. Kid, yeah. <laughs> Never grows old, does it? No, I haven't heard it in years. I'm going to go back and listen to the Pretenders yeah. again after that. But you also gave us some other interesting choices that were contenders. You're a big fan of the Stone Roses. Yes. Oh, I thought that that album was just fantastic. I am the resurrection and I am the light. I cannot even bring myself to hate you as I'd like. Like, you know, I mean, it's just so such a brilliant album. And then the melodies were fantastic, you know. But of course, they were drawing on uh, the sounds of the 60s, which which is the that Manchester sound was kind of drawing on the sound of the 60s. So that would be my kind of favourite pop sound is the sound of the 60s, really. But you also picked one which surprised me, and it's a great album that many people have chosen for the Culture Club, but I suppose it would be more mainstream, possibly. Mm. Fleetwood Max Rumours. Yeah, but then again, every song on it is perfect, really, you know? It's kind of like... Uh, and then you've got Stevie Nicks, you've got that strong kind of, like, uh, kicking, let's say, 
voice and vocal and um and the lyrics again the lyrics are good it, it, to me it's lyrics combined with a bit of punch and uh the music the melody as well if it's got all of that and emotion they they've all got a key in that they're all quite emotional you know so when we asked you for a favourite band of artists, you also mentioned the likes of The Jam, The Pretenders, Stone Roses again, but lots of other choices. Tell us who else it is that you love. Um, well, uh, The Rolling Stones, yeah, Bob Dylan, obviously. That's the lyrics and all that kind of stuff. Um, and Gilbert O'Sullivan. Gilbert O'Sullivan. Yeah. That's a perhaps left field choice. Yeah, but uh, Alone Again, Naturally and Nothing Rhymed are two of my favourite songs. Um it's the lyrics in those are just amazing and the way that they sit into the rhythm of the music so the delivery of the words um and and the beautiful sentiment behind them you know um nothing rhymed like you know today it's just god i mean on days when i'm feeling like things are just going wrong i just sing it in my head like you know why because today nothing rhymed like nothing you know, and uh, it just makes me feel better, like, you know. So, you know, you can have people... To me, it's the song, not the singer, um, in most cases, apart from with my big love of my life, Elvis, it's the singer, not the song. So, um, but that was probably the only case of that. Singer, we, not we'll the get song. to Elvis yeah. a little bit later, yeah. but we do have a little bit of Gilbert O'Sullivan oh, to play yeah. Alone Lovely. Again, naturally. Oh, yes. Lovely. But I suppose it surprises me you've picked this as somebody who was at one stage in your career the editor of the Pogues fanzine because <laughs> that's a very different type of music. Even if lyrically, obviously for Shane, the lyrics were very important. Yeah, but you see, Shane and I are the same like that. Um, we, we've got a very eclectic taste in music. Uh, we're not in the slightest musical snobs. If something's beautiful, it's beautiful. Um, so look, here's, here's an example. Um, uh, take was it take that who did whatever you whatever I said whatever I did I didn't mean it I just want you back for good you know whatever I said yeah. I just want you back for good we both loved that 
because and I, because I remember saying it to him, that's that's kind of good, isn't it? He go, yeah, yeah, that's all right. Like, you know? <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> so, <laughs> Gary Barlow, yeah, yeah, no, it's all right. <laughs> but but it's the song, you see. So uh, the melody was fantastic, and so uh, you know, so um, so the the lyrics, if the emotion is there, if the lyrics are delivering a really good message, um, I'm going to like it, and we're both kind of like that. You worked for Van Morrison for a period, too, I did. didn't you? What I did, did you do for him? I was his personal assistant. <laughs> so um, somebody was asking me, actually, what that involved. and uh, Dealing I'd, with his grumpy moods? Well, yeah, you <laughs> certainly had to deal with his grumpy <laughs> moods. But I told him it's a kind of like, it's an almost 24-7 job because, you see, Van is not necessarily straight rock and roll. Van is a man who has a very serious work ethic. So say when we were in America, I'd be getting up at six o'clock in the morning um, because I'd have to source the cafe that Van was going to go to, you know, make sure it was all had what he wanted, all that kind of stuff. Escort him to breakfast, look after all that, um, do all all his catering needs for the day, all the guest lists, all the concert things, saying that was all going okay, take calls, do all that, and then stay up with him, arrange his after-show parties and look after all his guests and then stay up with him till two or three in the morning, crash out for a few hours and get up again at six in the morning. I hope you were very, very well paid for all of that. I was very well paid, <laughs> yeah. For those days, the early 90s, yeah, I, I was. For me, I mean, now I think no way that, that wasn't, but it was, for those days it was good, you know. Um, but it's the kind of job you could only do when you're young, you know. I was in my late 20s then. I was able to, to do it, you know. But I mean... I don't think you'd be able to do it in your early 30s. Do you still keep in touch with them? No, Van's the kind of person that puts everything into the present. That's an interesting thing about him. He does not look back, as one of the songs says, don't look back. Van doesn't look back. He, uh, he's, he's very much in the present and he's about where he's going. He's not about where he's been. So uh, All about himself, is it? No, it's about... No. Uh, well, I suppose you could say that. I suppose you could say that. Yes, it's all about where he's going, I think. Yeah, his journey and where he's going. Yeah. No, best gig you were at. You must have been at hundreds, thousands of gigs in your time. Been at hundreds. So I'm going to have to say, first of all, to be the, the early Pogue Mahone gigs, which are fantastic. And the first Pogues gig oh, that I ever heard everybody shouting and screaming Shane's name. Um, they were... Uh, supporting Elvis Costello at the Hammersmith Odeon and I was walking up the stairs and I heard Shane, Shane, Shane I went, what? Like that, Shane, Shane, Shane and I looked at it and I said, oh my God, what is happening? Because when I've been watching, you know where they were just uh, kind of on the stage rambling in front of lots of our friends and our friends' word grew and then it was word of mouth in all these little underground clubs and in the Bull and Gate and in the Hope and Anchor and the Wag Club in Soho. Very small, very underground, very bleak. And um, to kind of been transported then from that, because it was Elvis Costello that took them on tour. So that's when it, they took that, that kind of leap up. Uh, but somehow through that tour... Shane had, because uh, they were calling his name, uh, Shane had become uh, a sort of thing for them. So, uh, so that, was, that was a big, big thing for me to see that for the first time. 
You also had on the list Life of the Jesus and Mary Life Chain. Life of the Jesus and Mary Chain. As I said, I, I went to see them in London and I was really looking forward to it, you know. And um, so there I was in all my best black gothic outfit, you know. And in I go and uh, boom, boom, boom. And I said, I went, oh, my God. Right? The bass was so loud that it started to reverberate through my feet, up into my knees and into my stomach and actually started to make me feel sick. And I actually, I actually couldn't stay in the hall. I had to leave. They, they had their bass turned up so loud. Well, there's one that we've picked out, and this is a live version of Bell by Al Green, oh, who you saw on Vicar Street and yes. you put on your list as one of your favourite Ever gigs. songs, yeah. Let's hear it. I'd like to begin by saying, expectations when you saw him live oh he really really did like he really did um he didn't actually play that song which i was very disappointed about but uh he really did just to just to see him just to be in his his presence i suppose was wonderful because i've been listening to him for so long like you know and i just love i love all those blues singers and soul singers i love all the guys from Memphis and all around all, all, all those guys I just they really speak to my soul and my heart like you know I mean I could, I mean listening to that I mean I just like my whole heart is like exploding you know Siobhan McGowan is with us for the Culture Club here today on The Last Word at TFM. She's written her first novel, The Trial of Lotta Ray but we have all our other choices for the Culture Club coming up after this quick break Welcome back. Siobhan McGowan is with us for the Culture Club today. She has written her first novel, The Trial of Lotta Ray. Uh, we've heard all of her music choices, but we're now going to move on to movies and books and television. And let's start with movies. You have picked uh, John Huston's adaptation of James Joyce's novella, The Dead. Why so? Because it remi- again, it's set at that turn of the 20th century, which means a lot to me. Um, it's the era of my grandparents, and my grandparents on my father's side came from Dublin. And I remember my grandparents very well. I have lived that drawing room with that tea and the celery on the sideboard and the sherry. And I have <laughs> lived it. I have lived it with the aunts. I have lived all those parties. I, I recognise them and I identify totally with them. Um, but also because it features two of the most beautiful pieces of writing, I think, in the history of the English language, although one of them was actually Irish and it was translated by Lady Gregory. 
Um, shall I quote it? Well, we actually have the clip oh, of great. the Donalogue scene in The Dead. Yes. And this is the actor uh, reading the poem, the, reading the poem with Sean McClory. My mother told me not to be talking with you. Today or tomorrow or on Sunday. It was a bad time she took for telling me that. It was shutting the door after the house was robbed. You have taken the east from me. You have taken the west from me. You have taken what is before me and what is behind me. You have taken the moon. You have taken the sun from me. And my fear is great. You have taken God from me. It's a translation from the Irish by Lady Gregory. It's very strange, but beautiful. I've never heard anything like it. Very mysterious. Imagine being in love like that. I thought it was beautiful. Fantastic. Fantastic. And the movie lived up to the book. It did justice to the Um, book. Yeah, I think so. Um, And again, at the end of... Uh, we're probably not going to play that, but end, at the end of the story, and it says it at the end of the film, is the last passage from James Joyce's The Dead with the snow falling all over Ireland and uh, his soul swooned as he saw it softly falling and all upon all the living and the dead. You know, it's beautiful. So because of those two passages, it really speaks to me of my ancestry my uh, and in not too far past but you also picked one other movie that you had to mention. Yeah. And a, a Tom Cruise movie, <laughs> Vanilla Sky. Yeah. And when I say that, people say, yeah, I like Tom Cruise. No, it wasn't about Tom Cruise. It was, uh, it, it was an extraordinary film called Vanilla Sky. Yeah. Um, and it just shocked me so much. It was, it, I wasn't expecting it. It was a, a, about a guy who had it all. Um, he was in love. He, he fell in love with a girl, but there was a woman that loved him. She drove the car really fast. They had a huge crash. He got horribly disfigured. Um, he was worried that the new girlfriend wouldn't love him anymore. But luckily, apparently, they were able to reconstruct his face. And you went through this whole life where everything was blessed and then everything started to distort and he started to have nightmares and he'd wake up with really gruelling images of himself and uh, people would start to morph before his eyes from the woman he loved into the woman before. And in the end, it, it all came about that what had happened was he was so rich that he had been inducted into this program where they could put him into a virtual reality. He was still grossly, horribly disfigured. And what had happened was this woman that he thought loved him, loved her, had left him, had wanted nothing to do with him. And he was alone, lying in a kind of tunnel and just living a completely dream life. It was so shocking to me because I... I wasn't expecting it at all. And to see him so disfigured and so alone and so gross after what had appeared this perfect life, you know, it made me want to go back and look at it again and see what clues were there. So it just had a... a, I always remembered it. 
always remember. It had a shocking effect on me. Favourite play or musical or theatre show? You've gone for West Side Story. Mm, just just traditional there. Just always loved it as a little girl. La, 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 Mary girl. You know, I, I always just loved it. Um, the dancing, the energy, um, the thing. But I... I told you that uh, I went to see um, a production in London and uh, and luckily I can't remember who produced that one. But uh, we're all sitting in the audience and uh, it's all building up to this crescendo, this really huge scene now and the guy pulls out the gun and he points it at Tony and he pulls it back and, and the gun pops, just makes a little pop like that and the whole audience dissolved in laughter <laughs> so embarrassing for the cast like you know let's hear a little bit of Maria yeah. the most beautiful sound I ever heard Maria 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 all of the beautiful sounds of the world in a single word Maria 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 I've just met a girl named Maria and suddenly that name will never be the same to me Maria I've just kissed a girl named Maria and suddenly I found how wonderful a sound can be Maria say it loud and there's music playing say it's soft and it's almost Siobhan, have you seen the new Spielberg adaptation? No, I haven't. Oh, you're going to have to see that. Really? Yeah. Is it fantastic? Well, I wouldn't say it's fantastic, but it is worth seeing. Okay, definitely. I will see it then. Okay. Uh, favorite television shows. I think Top of the Pops was clearly a big influence on yes, you. Yes, and uh, Upstairs, Downstairs. As I say I was so so old. I can still re- I remember the first initial showing, folks, on the television. Not the not the reruns that are going on. But um, again, this is your thing. Turn of the century drama. It's turn of the century. Oh, exactly, turn of the century drama. And um, I've said that when we were young, actually, Dad. Um, watched, uh, made us watch I Claudius, which had David Jacobi in it, because uh, he was mad into Roman history and stuff. And actually, he took us to Greek plays as well, <laughs> which let's let's not go there. But anyway, um, but we liked I Claudius and uh, fantastic. So I always remembered that, um, and I like historical dramas. And um, the one of the the mo- most recent drama that I liked was um, It's a Sin. Uh, Tell us a bit about that. Yeah, so that was a Channel Four production. So it was a Channel Four production, and it was set in the eighties uh, at the beginnings of the AIDS e- epidemic, and featuring like these I don't know maybe four or five friends living in a house in London and their female friend, and 
obviously it's when the AIDS, they were gay, they were all gay. And uh, when the AIDS thing started to come around, so you started to see it hit and they didn't know what was going on. And then you you started to see them bit by bit fall. But you also saw all the rest of their lives and the series was so brilliantly done. It made you really care about the characters. I mean, I really cared about them, you know, um, Let's hear a bit. We have a yeah. scene here which Ollie Alexander, Keely Hawks, Lydia West and Sean Dooley star in. Here you are, lost. Oh my God, what's wrong with you? He says infectious diseases. What the hell is that supposed to mean? For oh God's sake, Richard. What, what is it? What's happened? What's, what's wrong? What are you doing here? We thought, surprise, we, we turned up and then your neighbour, that woman downstairs, she said you were here. Oh, she would. Well, what, what's wrong? What is it? Look, it's really nice to see you, but I think we should all... Sit down and have a little chat. It's a bit complicated to explain. Well, evidently, it's so complicated you chose not to tell us anything. Well, we now, said to them, we all said, I would what, like what was is this? They said infectious diseases. So if that's not you tell us, too you, much you, you to ask, what, 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 what does that mean? Richard, what's wrong with you? I've got AIDS. I'm gay. I'm homosexual. I contracted HIV and I'm sorry, but now it's AIDS. Where's your doctor? It's a Saturday. I don't think he's in. He's called Dr. Sullivan. I, I, but... I want to speak to a doctor. The acclaimed TV drama It's a Sin. We've come to the end of the Culture Club radio edition with Siobhan McGowan, but I've lots more to talk to her about, which we're going to put on podcast. So if you've enjoyed this, we're going to be talking about books and about her favourite cultural buried treasures in the podcast edition of the Culture Club here on The Last Word and Today FM. But for the radio edition, Siobhan McGowan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Matt. Okay, Siobhan McGon, we're going to continue and get to the things we didn't get a chance to talk about on the radio. Books, because books clearly, as an author, uh, as the author of your first novel, The Trial of Lotta Ray, there are lots of influences and you've picked the Brontes here. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah. Why so? The Brontes have been my moon and my sun since I was a young teenager, I suppose. Like, I'm absolutely obsessed with all things Bronte, like Charlotte Bronte, Emily Bronte, Ambrose, even even Branwell. Um, like, um, uh, Charlotte in particular, I was reading her novels, they really spoke to me. Um, in what way? What, what, for those who are not familiar with the novels, what sort of things do they address? It's the language. She seems to have... Uh, uh, well, I'm not sure that they addressed great social issues. I, don't, I mean, Charles Dickens did that. No, I think that they were a lang- the beautiful language in them, uh, the power of the setting, the power of the story, the power of emotion um, are, are the things that really spoke to me. The sense of place, a great sense of place as well. Um, but there's something that moved me about the Brontes themselves, their, that their family life together... There's something about the Yorkshire Moors that is lonely and haunting and poignant and sad and kind of beautiful as well. Um, And I think I identified a lot with them. Um, You know, Patrick Bronte was an Irish man who who was actually called Patrick Bronte and he was from uh, Banbridge in County Down. He was a Protestant and so he identified more with the British way of life and he went to Haworth in West Yorkshire 
and uh, uh, he was a curate in a parsonage and uh, and he was uh, you know god-fearing man but he inspired in his children and girls at the time uh, uh, to be intellectual to be seeking questioning all those things that weren't inspired in women at the time. He's a very forward-thinking man, I think. And I was always very attracted by the juvenilia. Um, it spoke to me of a lot of kind of way that we were a bit when we were kids, like the way we do writing and drawing. And our dad was very intellectual like that as well. Um, they didn't have a mother figure. They had a the sister thing. We had a fantastic, beautiful, warm mother. Um but the language, I suppose, more than anything, and actually um, my own language in the trial of Lotteray is quite old-fashioned, if you want to put it that way. Um, but it, it's of its period, so it, uh, hopefully it works. But, um, but like, for instance, um, Charlotte Bronte is well known for Jane Eyre, of course, but actually what I think her best book is is a book called Villette. We actually have oh. a clip from the audiobook of Villette. Okay. You could tell us about it after we've heard yes. it. Yes. Ginevra, being, I suppose, tired with dancing, sought me out in my retreat. She threw herself on the bench beside me, and, a demonstration I could very well have dispensed with, cast her arms round my neck. "'Lucy Snow! Lucy Snow!' she cried, in a somewhat sobbing voice, half hysterical. "'What in the world is the matter?' I dryly said. "'How do I look? How do I look tonight?' she demanded. "'As usual,' said I, preposterously vain.' "'Caustic creature! You never have a kind word for me. "'But in spite of you and all other envious detractors, "'I know I am beautiful. I feel it, I see it, "'for there is a great looking-glass in the dressing-room "'where I can view my shape from head to foot. "'Will you go with me now and let us two stand before it?' "'I will, Miss Fanshawe. "'You shall be humoured even to the top of your bent.' "'The dressing-room was very near, and we stepped in.' Putting her arms through mine, she drew me to the mirror. Without resistance, remonstrance or remark, I stood and let her self-love have its feast and triumph. OK, why are you so keen on that? OK, so um, Charlotte Bronte in Villette does, for like the first half of the book, what she does in most of her books is that she has a, a power over language, beauty in language, uh, but she's quite conservative. And then three-quarters of the way through the book, she breaks out and she goes into what I call a carnival of the mind and she starts describing what it's like being in an opioid state, uh, visions, trances, and it's just some of the most beautiful writing and it's, it's extraordinary because it's not... You don't think it's her, like, you don't think that, but it is her... And she was asked at the time, well, how on earth do you know, you know, about this if you don't do it? And she said, I can imagine it. And um, the, I understand that, I think. I think I understand that. And uh, it, I just thought it was fantastic, extraordinary writing. And I loved the way it contrasted with her very conservative way of writing usually. So um, I've read all her novels. I've read all of the Brontes works but Villette I really love Villette for that reason I think. The final thing we're going to ask you about is your what we call cultural buried treasure. You referred to your love of Elvis Mm. and Memphis earlier so you want to come back to that why? Because 
Elvis. Yeah, everybody's going to think it's strange that I've chosen Elvis as a hidden cultural treasure. The thing is that Elvis had a lot of different periods. He had his early period, which was his exciting breakthrough, a changing everything period. Then he had his awful post-army period, which were mediocre films, mediocre songs, which he himself hated. Then he had his extraordinary 1968 NBC special where he came back in black leather and just blew everybody away again, showing what a huge cultural force he was. But then he had his 70s period. Now, his 70s period started with... um, Elvis, that's the way it is, 1970, fantastic. I think everybody still agreed he was on top of his game. But then he slipped into 1972, 1973, and he was putting on weight, he was getting fat, he was taking too many drugs. Um, and But he is actually lambasted really because of the way he looks. You know, the extraordinary power and vulnerability in his voice and emotion in his voice was still there right to the very end. And I, as a young 14-year-old girl, sitting in my room, in my bedroom, listening to Elvis, singing to me, used to completely soothe my heart. And uh, you know those that 14-year-old angst that I think everybody has. Oh, well, nobody understands me. And so, you know, the stuff that we all have, to me, Elvis, Elvis got me. Elvis got me and I got Elvis. That's how it felt. We have a track from his last album, Moody Blue, Mm. in 1977. It's easy for you. stage of on his Las Vegas residencies, as you say, the fat Elvis period, the image of him just eating burgers and whatever, he still had that ability to sing and connect. Power, emotion, power and vulnerability together. What, what Elvis really touches in people is he expresses his vulnerability. And that is actually, at the end of the day, what touches people. Not only coming out and going straight to the own vulnerability in your own heart. And to me, that's what Elvis did with every note that he, most extraordinary voice. 
Siobhan McGowan, it has been fantastic having you for the Culture Club here on The Last Word in Today FM. Thank you very much for giving us all your choices and telling us all about them. Thanks, Matt. The Last Word with Matt Cooper. Today FM. It all happens here.